All right, well, we are coming to the end of our time in the book of Proverbs. Uh, after today, we're going to take a break next week, of course, for our Christmas Eve service, and then the Sunday following will be our last uh, time in Proverbs. And so today, I thought it would be good for us to do something a little bit different. Uh, we're going to be looking at Proverbs less as a practical book of wisdom and more as a theological textbook. Although this book is primarily concerned with uh, providing for us wisdom to direct us in our everyday lives, there is nonetheless lots of rich theological content throughout its pages. And so today we're going to be sort of surveying the book of Proverbs and asking, what does this book teach us about God? And so that's going to be our aim today. This study really isn't uh, separate from our overall goal in Proverbs to learn wisdom, because as Proverbs 9 verse 10 tells us, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. In other words, the more that we get to know God, the more we obtain wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is insight, and so that will be our pursuit this morning, to get to know God better, to learn what does Proverbs teach us about God. First, Proverbs teaches us that God is incomprehensible, and this is a point we're going to be returning to uh, throughout our time this morning. God is incomprehensible, meaning that he is beyond our ability to figure out. God is infinitely higher than us humans. Therefore, we should not expect to fully understand or know everything about him. Proverbs teaches this in chapter 25 Verse 2, where it says, It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. As Augustine famously said, if I could understand him, he wouldn't be God. God is far beyond our ability to comprehend, and yet we are called to learn of him as best as we can. It's true that God conceals things about him and that our human finite minds could never understand God fully, and yet the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. It is the glory of God to conceal things, yet the glory of kings is to search things out. This book being written by King Solomon to his son who would take his place as king over Israel. Obviously, Solomon is encouraging his son to pursue the knowledge of God, to search things out. It was a part of his duty as a leader of Israel to know God. Uh, We've talked before about how the kings of Israel were instructed by God to write out a copy of the entire book of Deuteronomy, uh, handwrite it themselves, take it home, study it, and reread it throughout the rest of their lives. They were to know God and know his ways. They were to be students of scripture, learning the principles of wisdom and righteousness revealed in the pages of God's word. And yet Solomon warns his son that there will always be things about God that are beyond your capability to grasp. And so with that qualification in place then, we should endeavor to learn as much as we can know and understand about God, yet understanding from the outset God is ultimately incomprehensible. Next, Proverbs teaches us that God is the creator of all things and that he has ingrained wisdom into the universe. Two very important points to get straight uh, that inevitably lead to many ramifications. First, God created all things. Nothing came into existence on its own. God is the source. God is the origin of all that exists. That's the first part. And then add to that the fact that God hardwired wisdom into his creation. 
Meaning that the principles of wisdom offered to us from God's word are the principles ingrained in our world. This is how the world works. And so learning to walk in wisdom is learning to live along the grain of the created universe. It is to live in a way that is in keeping with how our creator designed us to live and to function in this world. Proverbs 3 verse 19, The Lord by wisdom founded the earth, By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. Again, in chapter 8, wisdom is here speaking. And it says, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there was no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep. When he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep. When he assigned to the sea its limits, so that the waters might not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him. Like a master workman, I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of men. God created all things and ingrained wisdom in all his creation. Next, Proverbs teaches us that God is not distant or uninvolved in our lives. It's not like this God just created all things, got things spinning, and then walked away. God doesn't casually observe things from a distance, sort of just watching all the major events of the world. No, Proverbs says that the creator of our universe is deeply interested in each of our individual lives. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6, The Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. God knows you. God is present and involved in every day of your life. More on that in a minute. Next, Proverbs teaches us that God is sovereign over everything, meaning nothing in all of creation is outside of the control of God. He can do as he pleases, and no one and nothing can thwart His purposes. God is not bound by the laws of physics. He is not bound by the opposing will of man. No one can stop the Lord from doing something he has determined to do. Proverbs 19, verse 21 Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Again, in chapter 21, verse 30 No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. I hear a a few more statements on the sovereignty of God mentioned in Proverbs that are quite puzzling. If you really stop and think about them, they lead to a lot of questions, none of which we're going to have time to address today. Come Wednesday night, we'll talk about them further, I'm sure. But Proverbs says, for example, that God can control our thoughts. Chapter 21, verse 1. The king's heart is in uh, I'm sorry the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God can also control our decisions. Proverbs 20 verse 24. 
A man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way? In some way, our lives are superintended by God. God can control the words that we speak. Proverbs 16, verse 1. The plans of the heart belong to a man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Basically, there is nothing outside of God's ability to control, according to Proverbs. This includes even something that we would think of as seemingly very random, uh, like casting lots, which was the ancient way sort of like throwing dice. Proverbs 16, verse 33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. God is always in control. God knows everything that takes place in his creation, and he can intervene at any time. And we know many times he does. Now, again, I know that leads to all sorts of questions, like why doesn't God stop every terrible thing that takes place? Why doesn't God stop me from doing wrong and force me to do right? If God has the power, why doesn't God control us more and control things in our world more? How is it that God can control someone's actions or words or even thoughts, and yet he holds us responsible for our actions, our words, and our thoughts? All of that is complex stuff that we don't have time to dive into today. But perhaps one thing to point out is where we started. God is incomprehensible. Trying to figure out answers to all of those difficult questions at some point is going to be a futile effort. We are humans incapable of grasping God fully. And yet Proverbs wants us to know very clearly that nothing is outside of God's ability to control. He is sovereign over his creation. Big things, small things, important things, and even seemingly insignificant things. God is not bound. Next, Proverbs teaches us that God sees everything we do, he hears everything we say, and he knows everything we think. That pretty much covers it, right? Uh, That was the most comprehensive way I could think of to make this point. Nothing that we do escapes God's notice. He sees everything we do, he hears everything we say, he knows everything we think. Proverbs 15, verse 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Not only is this true in a broad sense, but it's true in a very personal sense as well. God knows everything that you do. His eyes are constantly on your life. Proverbs 5, verse 21. A man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. Even more deeply than just a personal level is the thought level. God knows what is in each of our hearts. Proverbs 15, verse 11. Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of the children of man. This again strikes at the mistaken idea that many of us have that God is distant from us. Perhaps watching the affairs of the world broadly, but he's surely not concerned with me, what I did what I said, what I think today. Proverbs says God observes each of our lives at all times. Our actions, our words, our thoughts. He knows you more deeply than any human ever could. Next, we learn from Proverbs that God is able to be angered. This is something that comes up frequently throughout the book. Some have a view of God that he is loving, he is infinitely forgiving, And therefore, he's not really to be feared. And Proverbs wants to correct that mistaken notion. Nothing could be further from the truth. God is a zealous God. He is a consuming fire. 
As we saw last week, we, there are seven things listed in Proverbs 6 that God says are disgusting to his soul, things that he hates. Or take, for example, Proverbs 16.5. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Proverbs 15.25. The Lord tears down the house of the proud, but maintains the widow's boundaries. God is angered by sin and defiance of him, which leads us to the next point. Proverbs teaches us that God works against the wicked to bring about their demise. And this is sort of the logical conclusion of the previous points. God is in control of all things. He sees everything that takes place. He is angered by certain actions of humanity. Therefore, it's no surprise that he often intervenes to oppose those who anger him. Here are Five statements in Proverbs that all sort of make this same point. Proverbs 21.12, The righteous one observes the house of the wicked. He throws the wicked down to ruin. Chapter 22, verse 12, The eyes of the Lord keep watch over knowledge, but he overthrows the words of the traitor. Verse 14 of that same chapter, The mouth of a forbidden woman is a deep pit. He with whom the Lord is angry will fall into it. And then verse 22, Do not rob the poor because he is poor, or crush the afflicted at the gate. For the Lord will plead their cause and rob of life those who rob them. Lastly, chapter 24, verse 19, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of the wicked. For the evil man has no future. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. We may not see God's judgment on the wicked in this life. Often we do. But sometimes evil people seem to get away with their sin. Proverbs assures us this is not the case. We're told here, don't look at evildoers with envy because God will bring about their destruction. If not in this life, certainly in the next. And as Hebrews 10 says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, let's balance this out with the next point. Proverbs also teaches us that God is able to be pleased. Lest you think of God as angry at all times, ready to severely judge you any moment you sin, we are repeatedly told in Proverbs that there are people who find favor in God's sight, people with whom he is pleased. It is true that we can anger God and we can invite his opposition against us. It is also true that we can please God. Proverbs 3, verse 3. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the table of your heart, so you will find favor and find in good success in the sight of God and man. Often we think that favor with God is an impossible thing to achieve, that the commands of God are impossibly high, And because we're bound to fail at times, God is just always going to be angry and disappointed with us. Like we cannot possibly please God. We struggle to pray because we're aware of the many ways we've sinned against God this week. And so we think he probably doesn't want to hear from us. We feel a sense of perpetual displeasure from our Father. And I want to be careful not to excuse unrepentant sin, if you are continually disregarding God's commands, then yes, you do need to be warned to repent or face his anger. And yet, for many of you, it may be that you're truly trying to follow Christ and you struggle. 
you fall, as all of us do. But in your heart is a sincere desire to obey the Lord and to live a life that is pleasing and honoring to him. And if that's you, be reminded that God accepts your genuine efforts to please him. He doesn't demand perfection from you. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after a righteousness they will never perfectly attain in this life. Yet they are a delight to the heart of God for their pursuit. Proverbs 15, verse 9, The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves him who pursues righteousness. If you are one who is actively pursuing righteousness, be encouraged. God loves you. He loves you as imperfect as your obedience may be at times. As frail as your efforts are to improve and become more and more the Christian that you know you need to be, he sees every stride you take, and it pleases his heart. Our righteous acts are imperfect, and they always will be. And yet, God accepts our genuine efforts to please him. Like a young child who brings a drawing to his parent as a gift, uh, something that the child worked hard to produce. Maybe it's a crayon drawing of their family. Of course, the drawing isn't objectively impressive. But a loving parent isn't going to crumple it up and say, try harder, this is garbage. No, a loving parent will accept the efforts of the child, and be pleased with the gift that they have presented, this expression of their love. God accepts our humble, sincere acts of righteousness. He is pleased when we follow the principles that he has offered to us in his word. In chapter 8 of Proverbs, wisdom again speaking says, Whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. Walk in wisdom as Proverbs teaches us, and you will obtain favor with God. Proverbs 12, verse 2, A good man obtains favor from the Lord, but a man of evil devices he condemns. Notice, a good man, not a perfect man. We're all flawed, and yet we can find favor in God's eyes. Verse 22 of the same chapter says, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. As we saw last week, one of the sins that God says he hates most is lying, deception. But the opposite is true as well. Those who live with integrity and are honest, they are God's delight. So be encouraged this morning. You can live a life that is pleasing to God. You can experience favor and you can please the Lord despite your weaknesses, despite your imperfections. God knew when he saved you, All of the ways that you would fail and disappoint him in the future. And yet, he died for you, he redeemed you, and he calls you to live a life that is pleasing to him. True and honest living, sincerely trying to follow the principles of God's word, will delight the heart of God. Next, Proverbs teaches us that God blesses those who respect him and honor him with their lives. This is part of his disposition of favor on the righteous, He intervenes in their lives to bless them in many ways. Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 10. Note here the positive blessings, the benefits that are given as a result of honoring the Lord. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, your vats will be bursting 
with wine. Verse 33, the Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. As you walk in the ways of wisdom and righteousness laid out in this book, you are inviting the favor and blessing of God into your life. God blesses those who respect him and honor him with their lives. Next, Proverbs tells us that God corrects those he loves. There are times in each of our lives when we may stray from the path that God has set for us. And often, God sends trials into our lives, not for the sake of hurting us, but helping us, driving us back to dependence on him, helping us correct course in ways that we may have gone astray. Proverbs 3, verse 11. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father the son in whom he delights. Now this is hard for us to understand in the moment. We have a hard time receiving correction from God, just like children often have a hard time receiving correction from their parents. Yet every good parent understands that this is an act of love to discipline a child. It is for their ultimate good, for their maturity, though they may not see it now. And often we adults behave more like children than we may care to admit. God sends correction into our lives as an act of love. This proverb says God doesn't hate us. Rather, his correction is specifically because the Lord loves us, because he delights in us. He wants us to experience a life of his blessing, a life of flourishing. And at times, a part of his love towards us is displayed in correction. So don't bristle at the discipline of the Lord. Don't rebel against him. Let him work in your life and draw you back to his will. Next, we learn from Proverbs that God listens to the prayers of the righteous. Very simply, Proverbs fifteen twenty nine: The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. A part of God's blessing and love for those who follow his ways is that he is attentive to their prayers. The sovereign creator of the universe is so interested in your life that he listens when you speak to him. That's a thought worth pondering. Uh, Maybe sometime today when you're alone and you have some time, perhaps as you lay down to sleep, take some time to meditate on this reality. Let it really sink in that the almighty God who created all things who sovereignly rules over the universe, hears the prayers of the righteous. Lastly, Proverbs teaches us that God has a son. It being the Christmas season, you knew I was going to get there eventually, even though we're in Proverbs. Well, here you go. Over in chapter 30, we find what is, I think, one of the most fascinating sections in the entire book. Proverbs 30, beginning with verse 1, says, The words of Agor son of Jacha, the oracle. So this is not Solomon writing this section. Uh, Solomon wrote most of Proverbs, but the last two chapters are written by others, uh, in this case, Agor. And so here's what Agor says. The man declares, I am weary, O God, I am weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? 
And what is his son's name? Surely you know. If you're well acquainted with the book of Job, particularly the last few chapters of Job, much of this language will sound familiar to you. And Agur is admitting, basically, the incomprehensibility of God, that the Holy One is beyond his ability to understand. He feels a sense of frustration at his human limitation. He feels that he lacks wisdom because he cannot grasp God thoroughly. And then at the end of verse 4, we have this startling question. What is God's name and what is his son's name? Now, this is not the only place in the Old Testament that we have a hint that God has a son. There are a few more. For example, here's a famous line from Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. A son is being described here who is called the Mighty God. And so here in Isaiah... Just like in Proverbs 30, we have a reference to what we now understand in the New Testament to be the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is one being eternally existing as three persons, that in the mystery and incomprehensibility of God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all equal, yet distinct from one another. And what Agor is hinting at here in Proverbs is revealed ultimately in the New Testament with the arrival of Christ. Matthew 1, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So in answer to the question of Agor, what is God's son's name? We find out in the New Testament It is Jesus, Yahweh saves. It is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the Son of God, the eternally existent Son of the Father, who came to become our brother. Taking on a human existence, God revealed himself to us in a way that never could have been imagined, uh, that the almighty creator of the universe, the one who sovereignly rules over all things, stooped so low to become a baby in a manger. The creator entered his creation. The author wrote himself into the story. The artist drew himself into the painting. The playwright entered the stage. The human mind struggles to even express in words what it means that God, who created everything, the source of all that exists, came into our world as one of us. This is the wonder of the incarnation. The birth of Christ shows us how far God was willing to go to bless us and to save us from our sins, that he would even enter our existence to live a life of righteousness and then to lay down his life on the cross in our place. God embraced our frailty and he experienced our suffering because of his great love for us. 
John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so Proverbs has quite a lot to teach us about God. Yet the greatest, most spectacular revelation of who God is came later, when God sent his son into our world. This is how interested God is in our lives. He is not distant. He sees us, and he cares so much for us that he became one of us to redeem us from our sin. And now he invites you to have your sins forgiven through the life and death of Christ. And he calls you to follow the example that Christ left for us in living a life of righteousness and experiencing the favor of God. Let's pray together.